Welcome to this very special program here at the Jewish Center. It's a pleasure to be able to thank our partners at Yeshiva University for making this evening possible. Special thanks to our friends Paul Glasser and Stu Halpern. You are consummate professionals. It's a privilege to work alongside you in the service of our community. The Jewish Center has enjoyed a deep and enduring relationship with Yeshiva University over these past decades, and it's an honor to acknowledge the presence of the former president and chancellor of Yeshiva University, our rabbi and our teacher, Morena Verabenu, Rabbi Norman Lamb. Uh, one final word of thanks is reserved for Jewish Center members Elliot and Debbie Gibber, who are co-sponsors of our pre-Pesach program. And I encourage you to stay apprised the numerous outstanding programs and events over the coming weeks. From the Chief Rabbi to the Vice President of the Israeli Supreme Court, we hope you'll always find opportunities to elevate your Jewish lives here at our center. You know, in a few days, we'll read about the completion of the Mishkan, spiritual heart of the Jewish people in the wilderness. Of course, it had many functions, but in housing the tablets and the Torah, it was the great icon of our Mesorah. While one generation passed on in the wilderness and another arose to take its place, the Mishkan. The Mishkan remained the home of our eternal Torah. That was the constant. Both literally and figuratively, it was responsible for transporting the Torah, preserving it, while at the same time making it accessible to every member of the Jewish people. You know, in fact, wondering where the Jewish people would have found acacia wood, not indigenous exactly to the Sinai Desert, the Medrash suggests that the wood came from trees, which Yaakov Avinu instructed his children to plant in Egypt generations earlier. Not just the spiritual identity, but the very substance of the Mishkan itself bespoke the language of our ancestral tradition. You know, in our generation, there are precious few individuals possessed of the capacity to faithfully transmit the complexities of our Mesorah and at the same time make it accessible to such a wide audience. Rabbi Sachs has written extensively about the virtues of influence and inspiration. Though in ancient Israel it was the king who wielded power, it was the prophet who exerted influence. The Navi commanded no armies and had no means by which to enforce his message. Yet while the power of the king typically followed him to the grave, the influence of the prophet endured. Well, it's true that the era of prophecy ended more than 2,000 years ago. The Gemara tells us, Even if the Jewish people are not prophets themselves, it must be remembered that they are descended of prophets. The chief rabbi is the heir to this great prophetic legacy, the extraordinary capacity to influence and inspire a fractured world. After serving as chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth for 22 years, Rabbi Sachs is now the Ingeborg and Ira Renner Global Distinguished Professor of Judaic Thought at New York University, the Kressel and Efrat Family University Professor of Jewish Thought at Yeshiva University. He's also been appointed as Professor of Law, Ethics, and the Bible at King's College London. What he's accomplished in these past decades is simply remarkable. Rabbi Sachs holds 14 honorary degrees, including a Doctor of Divinity conferred to mark his first 10 years in office by the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
14 honorary degrees. If anyone's keeping track, that's 14 more honorary degrees than anyone else in this room. <laughs> Almost exactly 20 years ago, the Chief Rabbi was awarded the Jerusalem Prize for his contribution to diaspora life. And 10 years ago, he was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen and made a life peer, taking his seat in the House of Lords. He's also the author of 25 books, several of which will be available immediately following our program this evening. In the world of rabbinic leadership, Rabbi Sachs has become our most outstanding model. Through the depth of his scholarship and his unending eloquence, Rabbi Sachs translates the vocabulary and values of our Messorah into a poetic code of sanctified Jewish living. Rather than sacrificing religious complexity on the altar of the quotidian, he embraces it, he elevates it, and demonstrates its relevance to our contemporary moment. Rabbi Sachs, I have referenced your writings and quoted your words on countless occasions. Both to our community and to me personally, you are an ongoing inspiration. I am humbled by the honor of introducing our very special guest, Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Levine, uh, beloved Prince, Rabbi Levine, thank you so much for that lovely introduction and may I salute your wonderful, generous, compassionate, learned and sensitive leadership of this great community for so many years. Thank you also for that lovely introduction. One word particularly resonated with me the phrase unending eloquence. The eloquence I'm not sure about, but the unending. <laughs> but friends, uh, bear with me if I spare, pay a special tribute to a remarkable individual because a memory came back to me so powerfully this evening. You see, 47 years ago, uh, as a young uh, sophomore undergraduate student in search of Jewish enlightenment I came to New York in the summer of 1968 and came to this shul where an extraordinary rabbi Rabbi Norman Lamb welcomed me in not knowing me from Adam gave me his time and his wisdom spoke to me of his dream of modern orthodoxy, of the particular challenge of Yeshiva University. And that encounter has resonated with me in all the years from then till this day. Rabbi Lam, your leadership, not only of this community, but of Yeshiva University, of modern orthodoxy, was, has been so outstanding in its dignity and intellectual integrity. We salute you and we wish you many more years of health, happiness and blessing. Amen. Mm. 
And yes, Rabbi Levine, getting the uh, knighthood and the place in the House of Lords are actually two different things. Um, the knighthood, I mean, the House of Lords means I have to turn up and speak, which I do unendingly. And <laughs> I have to so does everyone else. And, uh, but the knighthood is something different. That's just an honor. And that was really nice. That was 10 years ago because it allowed my mom, Allah Shalom, to meet the Queen. She didn't care too much about the knighthood, but to meet the Queen. And, and this was not a shedding moment like you've never seen. The only problem is this, and, and I speak here very simply, that um, when you are knighted by Her Majesty, you have to kneel. Now, Jews do not kneel, you know, except our Jewish Baruch and then only with the greatest possible rarity, but Mordechai, you don't do that kind of thing. This posed a technical problem for the power staff, which they solved with great grace, and they got me a sort of stand, a bit like this, so I could lean marginally forward from the perpendicular, without actually kneeling. And so I went through this uh, whole rigmarole, and Her Majesty was clearly both perplexed <laughs> and amused. And she turned to Prince Philip and said, Why is this night different from all that? <laughs> Which kind of introduces my theme this evening. Uh, and sadly, this is my thing this evening, because there are bits of the Haggadah that from time to time resonate with a meaning that we never really expected before. And for me, the passage that never resonated at all was the Hishandalavasenu you know, that promise that that promise he made that promise to Abraham that he would come through his descendants would come through every uh, trial that is what stood for us because it was not Egypt alone that stood against us to destroy us but in every generation they rise against us to destroy us and Hashem delivers us from our hand. Now, growing up, I felt that paragraph belonged to my parents, to my Buddha and Zayda, to their world. It made no sense in our world at all. My father, Abhijan, you know, was of that generation. He saw it everywhere. Whenever they traffic lights went red, he always used to say, anti-Semitic traffic lights. <laughs> and he knew it. He came from a place in Poland called PLC, which you shouldn't know of, but which became notorious because they had a pogrom there in 1946, even after the show. So he knew what anti-Semitism was all about. Whereas I, growing up, I and my brothers growing up in London, in a really non-Jewish world, we had non-Jewish friends and going to university, I did not experience, I don't think my brothers did, 
a single episode of anti-Semitism for the first 50 plus years of my life. And it was around 2002 that uh, our youngest daughter came back one day. She had gone to a, she was a student at the London School of Economics. She was a, had gone to an anti-globalization rally, which quickly turned into a tirade, first against America, then against Israel, and then against Jews. And she came, she sat on my bed with tears running down her face. And she said, Dad, they hate us. Now, Dame Rebecca West, the great novelist, once wrote that given all they have been through, to be a Jew is to have an unsurprisable soul. It was at that moment I discovered I had a surprisable soul. I did not expect to see this in the 21st century. And therefore I thought what I'd just do very simply for you tonight is just talk about Pesach from the point of view of anti-Semitism. Because this is a story though that I don't think has been told. It's just an interesting story. So I'm going to talk about seven moments where Pesach interacted with the world outside to generate very difficult moments for the Jewish people. And then at the end, I'll say what I think we have to do right now because I don't want to leave us. God forbid on a negative note that would be quite wrong. But let me begin, really almost at the beginning. And, and here, it's very interesting. We do not know who the Pharaoh of the Exodus was. But we do know the first reference to Israel outside tonight. And it is so interesting. Because the first reference to Israel, which goes back pretty much almost to the time of Yitzhak, the time of the Exodus from Egypt, is on a, an inscription inscribed by Manetta IV, who was the direct successor of Ramses II, who most historians believe is the pharaoh of the Exodus. So we actually have a report from Ramses' son. I mean, he lost, believe it or not, Manhattan before he lost his first 13 sons, actually. It's an extraordinary thing. But Manetta IV, which was his oldest surviving son, recorded on a black block of black basil, which I've never seen, but it's today in the Cairo Museum. And it says the following, it records the following sentence, Israel is laid waste, her seed is no more. In other words, the Egyptians believed that was the end of the Jews. They left Egypt, they left the world, there were no more Jews. The first reference to Israel outside tonight is an obituary. Oddly enough, so is the second. The second reference to Israel outside tonight is on something called the Mesha Stele, uh, inscribed by Mesha, king of Moab in the 9th century BCE, and it says virtually the same thing. I have destroyed Israel completely. So the Jews were believed to have been finished by the Exodus. But my story actually begins a thousand years afterwards in the 3rd century BCE by an individual who is not as widely known as he ought to be 
but whom I regard as the ancestor of anti-Semitism. We know that the Egypt of Ramesses II reached its zenith at that point and then began a fairly precipitate decline and was taken over by a number of empires, but most significantly by the empire of Aristotle's Talmud, Alexander the Great. And the Alexandrian Empire, which conquered the whole of uh, North Africa and much of the Middle East, was divided, in, as you know, after Alexander's death, into two ruling dynasties, the Seleucids in Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt. And Ptolemy II is where our story begins. Ptolemy II, as you probably know, ordered the first ever translation of Tanakh into any other language, the so-called Shi'in, the Septuagint. And at that time, there, were a, there was a very large Jewish community in Egypt, especially in Alexandria. The Gemara says about the shul in Alexandria that it was so noisy that somebody had to stand on a bimmer and wave a flag to tell people when to say, Amen. Oh, we have shoes like that in London. <laughs> and uh, and uh, in, in the third century BC, during the reign of Ptolemy II, an Egyptian priest called Manito, are you familiar with the name? Manito undertook to rewrite the story of the Exodus. And this is how Manito rewrote the story. He said the following, that these Hebrews, these Jews, were not trying to leave Egypt, they were trying to control Egypt. And they were, in fact, a group of lepers. And Pharaoh decided that he did not want them in Egypt any longer. They had taken over the government, he defeated them, and he ordered them to be exiled from Egypt. And a, an Egyptian called Osaseth, who changed his name to Moses, came before Pharaoh and said, and Pharaoh wouldn't listen and he drove them out. That was Manito's rewriting of the story of Pesach and the Exodus. Now you may think, so what? An Egyptian priest writes a revisionary narrative in the 3rd century BCE. However, it did change an entire climate of opinion. Until then, we do not find the great Greek writers saying much about Jews at all. And what they do say about Jews is quite positive. Theophrastus, another student of Aristotle, wants to explain to the Greeks who are the Jews. And you know what he calls them? A nation of philosophers. Because they're always studying. I mean, it's a beautiful poetic description. But we don't really have negative descriptions of Jews by the Hellenistic writers. After Melito, we get almost exclusively negative accounts by the Greek writers. And so serious was this that Josephus faced an anti-Semitic writer in his day called Apion, who basically retold Melito's account of the Exodus and Josephus had to write a whole book contra Apiona, against Apion, 
to defend Jews against the rivals of Melito. So those Melito's wars continued all the way through to, uh, to uh, the first century. They were hovering in the background. And the trouble is they were taken up by Hellenistic writers. One of the most catastrophic, and it just shows you, when one bad line <coughs> enters the bloodstream of the civilization, it can stay there for centuries. There's an aftermath of this story which is truly horrendous. And here it is. One of the writers who takes up Manito's account is a, is a Roman writer of the first century called Passivus. A German philosopher of the 19th century called Schopenhauer writes a commentary on Tacitus. And he quotes Tacitus and, and extemporizes on Tacitus' account of the Jews in Egypt. And he calls Jews. I like that. <laughs> which grandchildren is that? I don't know. And Schopenhauer, on the basis of Passivus, on the basis of Monita, calls Jews masters of the law. And do you know who takes that sentence to heart and quotes it at every opportunity? Adolf Hitler. Schopenhauer became, because of Schopenhauer's commentary to Tacitus, based on Adrian, based on Monito, Schopenhauer became Adolf Hitler's famous philosopher. So here is a line that lasts for 23 centuries and passes from Egypt to Greece to Rome to Germany today. So that is the first moment of Pesach interacting with anti-Semitism. The second moment is probably much more serious. You see, the Greeks didn't like Jews very much. But, I mean, you remember what, what they said say in The Godfather when the Mafia are about to shoot you just, as, just before you sleep with the fishies, they say. It's not in poison, it's strictly business. <laughs> so when the Greeks didn't like Jews, it was nothing personal. Because the Greeks didn't like anyone who wasn't Greek. They called them the barbarians because they made noises like sheep. They thought, you know, these are just uncivilized little barbarians. So with Greeks, not like the Jews, that was not anti-Semitism. That was xenophobia. Not liking the people like us. Anti-Semitism was born with the birth of Christianity. And that was a terrible tragedy which has Baruch Hashem has been reversed in our time, but for the better part of two thousand years it became very serious. What did this have to do with Pesach? Well, I'm sure you know. The climax of the gospel narrative is a Seder service. So the Last Supper is quite possibly a Seder. All, all the key events on the last day of Jesus' life take place on Pesach. So it was on Pesach that the followers of Jesus used to have their main celebration, which in the course of time became Easter, but Easter is always very close. To so it was a Pesach-oriented thing. Now, because of this negative attitude that the Romans inherited from the Greeks on Jews, um, anything that looked 
like a civil disturbance on the part of Jews was terribly ultra-sensitive. Now here we hit an extraordinary historic catastrophe, which is that Romans were ultra-sensitive to anything that looked as if Jews were having an uprising or rebelling against Rome. But they were sensitive about this all the way through, through from Pompeii all the way through. But they were ultra-sensitive from the start of the Great Rebellion against Rome in the year 66, Corbin by Cheney in the year 70, all the way through to the Great Diaspora Revolt of 115 to 117, to the Balkhafka Revolt of 132 to 135. It was just during that period that all the Gospels were written. So anything that made Jesus look as if he had been put to death by the Romans, which he had been, everyone knows, and nobody disputed the fact, crucifixion is not a Jewish punishment, it's a Roman punishment, that they didn't, uh, that Sanhedrin <coughs> did not have cattle powers at that time. So there was never any question that it was the Romans. But going through chronologically the Gospels from Mark to Matthew to Luke, you see a gradual increase of shifting the blame to the Jews until by John already Pontius Pilate is almost an innocent and it's the Jews who are begging for his death. So an entire history of blaming the Jews, not only for rejecting the Messiah, but for being responsible for the death of the Messiah all up. During that critical period when if you were a Christian, you did not want to upset the Romans because they were the ones who controlled your future. And that's why you had to blame the Jews. And you can see that happening in real time as you go from gospel to gospel. It's already present in the first gospel, and which is written at almost exactly the time of Corbin by Cheney, and it increases all the way through to John. So you have here real anti-Semites. This becomes very marked in the 4th century. It's very interesting. Christians until then knew that Jesus was Jewish and Christianity began as a form of Judaism. They knew that. And they knew under the Roman Empire that they were interested. They were Jews living in the neighborhoods where Romans were living throughout the Roman Empire. And therefore they started going to shul. It is conceivable that the rabbi gave a better drosha than the vicar did. I'm not sure about that. But maybe the chasm was better. Maybe the music was better. They started going to shul. Now the leaders of the church, the church fathers, did not like that at all. They called that Judaizing, and it was absolutely anathematic. They began writing literature, which is a scary literature. You don't want to know. It was called the Adversus Judeos literature. It was a literature of pure, unadulterated anti-Semitism, and it took the Holocaust and the reflection on the Holocaust for a French historian called Jules Isaac to tell that story, which had been buried for many centuries. He told that story, a very great, a considerably impressive pope called John XXIII, read his books. In 1961, met Jules Isaac and realized that the church has a responsibility for running up to its party of anti-Semitism. 
and it was John the 23rd who said in motion what became Vatican II, Master Aitane, and the changed relationship between the church and the Jews. I have to say, there were many popes who did well, but none as well as the current pope, Francis I. I had the privilege of being with him in the Vatican a couple of months ago. This man has said more positive things about Judaism than any pope in all of history. And we're very blessed by him. It's a very important fact. So the second piece of connection is the birth of Christianity, which created this, 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 this centuries of hostility to Jews above all in Europe. What was the third? The third moment we can date with some precision to the year 1095 where Urban II announces the first crusade and in 1096 crusaders on their way to the Holy Land to liberate it from the Muslims stop and go out of their way to Northern Europe to worms, fire and might and massacre Jewish communities. At that point Anti-Semitism becomes more than just a negative attitude, and it becomes an active form of persecution. For the next five centuries, Jews in Europe suffer major persecution at the hands of Christians. And the whole view of Jews becomes different. No longer are Jews the ones who didn't accept Christianity. No longer are they ones who might have been responsible for the death of Jesus. They become an active demonic force for evil. If something bad happens, it's the Jews doing it. They were accused of desecrating the house, that is, of desecrating the stuff that was used in the Eucharist. They were accused of poisoning wells. They were accused of spreading the plague. When the Black Death took ten, over 10 million casualties in Europe, it was Jews who were blamed for the Black Death. Whatever Jews could be blamed for, they were blamed for. But there was one English contribution which I am deeply, but seriously deeply ashamed. And that happened in a little town in Britain called Norwich in 1144. It was there that a Christian child disappeared. His name was William. Nothing much happened for five years. But after five years, a Christian writer, Geoffrey uh, uh, of Monmouth, wrote an account in which he claimed that this young boy had been taken by Jews and murdered so that the Jews could use the blood to make monsters the bloodline, the unlucky Never was there a crazier line. I mean, anyone who knew anything about Jews knows that the tiniest speck of blood was food inedible. This never made any sense at all. It made sense in Christian terms because in, at the end of the 11th century, Christianity formulated the doctrine, the word didn't exist before the 11th century, called transubstantiation. That in the Eucharist and the Catholic Mass, you were actually drinking the blood and eating the flesh when you had drank the wine and, and ate the wafer. So as soon as transubstantiation enters Christian theology, Jews get blamed. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. Now, at least five popes publicly declared during the Middle Ages the blood libel was absolutely false, it was untrue. Pope after pope after pope said it. It did not stop the blood libel spreading, 
There are at least 150 recorded cases from 1144 to the 20th century, and nothing the Catholic Church could do could stop it. It has left its mark on Haggadah. Where? It appeared then, and only then, because Easter being close to Pesach, and the Gospel being about it, and, and the bloodline being about making matzahs for Pesach, all of this was focused on Pesach. So if there was going to be a massacre of Jews in any little European town, it would take place on Pesach. And that's why Jews knew they needed special shmirah if they were special protection of Pesach, and that's when Shulchan Aruch entered. If you look in the Shulchan Aruch, you'll find in the medieval art of Rishonim, if there is a blood line, we'll use white wine instead of red wine for the other person. It made a serious impact on my life. The trouble is, of course, and here we deal with something very, very tragic indeed. What happened in the 19th century, and this is really one of the worst things ever, is that the blood Bible, which has no place whatsoever in Islam, was taken into the Middle East, into Islam, in the 19th century, in Egypt, in Lebanon, and in Syria, by Maronite and Coptic Christians. The most famous blood Bible in the Middle East, as you know, was the 1840 Damascus blood Bible. The first time the Jews had them out, an international rescue mission. So Moses Montefiore from the Board of Deputies, Adolf Premier of the Consistoire, had to travel to Damascus to secure the release of the Jewish prisoners. And uh, if you go to the Hebrew University, you will find that Latin, Latin, Judeo-Arabic, that the nine wives of the nine Jews who were accused of the release wrote to Judith Lady Montefiore to say that he don't But the end result of that is that in 1983, the man who until quite recently was the Defense Minister of Syria, Mustafa Klaas, in 1983, produced a book called The Matzah of Zion, in which he retop, has reignited the blood libel. And in 1991, the Syrian representative at the United Nations Human Rights Commission recommended that all members of the United Nations Human Rights Commission should read the months of Zion to know what Syria was up against with Zionist purposes. So the blood libel is still believe it or not, a lively one in the Middle East. Europe having been cured of the virus, the Middle East has now been infected. And this came to Islam from the outside. What's the next moment? The next moment, unfortunately, was um, what do we say in Mahagadah? It's very interesting. The Haggadah, which is uh, of course based on the Tanedi Midrash, understands not as the Egyptians did evil to us. It translated as the Egyptians pretended to be our friends. They pretended initially to be our friends, but then they, you know, first the honey and then came the stick. And that, I'm afraid, is the story of Europe in the 19th century. 
with the French Revolution, the first sentence of the French Revolution, National Assembly, all men are born and remain equal in rights. The question was, did Jews come out of that category? And you remember, towards the end of December 1789, the Count of Clermont-Tonnerre gets up and says, to Jews as individuals, everything, but to Jews collectively as a nation, nothing. So this was the French revolutionary way of saying, yes, we accept you Jews, so long as you never behave like Jews in public. So this was a form of saying, you don't have to convert to Christianity, but you do have to convert to being secular in public. Uh, what do they call it? The anonymous truth of the Jewish people. And that, unfortunately, turned out to be the honey and afterwards came to sin. Because really true, what happened in the heart of Europe by 1879 was something which was the worst mutation of all. In 1879, a German journalist called Wilhelm Marr coins a new word. Anyone know what the word was? Anti-Semitism. Didn't exist before 1879. Why? Because until 1879, Jews had been hated for their religion. Now, you couldn't talk about religion in public because this was a secular Europe. So Jews were hated for their race. And that was a dramatic and disastrous turn because you could change your religion so Christians could work for the conversion of the Jews. But you cannot change your race. And therefore, there's anyone for the elimination of the Jews. This was the worst thing in history. And of course, it rose to a crescendo as we know. Early in 1880, Edward Roman had published in France La France Juive, a virulently anti-Semitic book, published for the first time in 1880, went through over 100 editions and was best selling until 1945. 1894, Dreyfus Carl. 1897, the notoriously anti-Semitic Karl Luca becomes mayor of Vienna, where Hitler gets his first And all of this reaches a kind of culmination in the darkest night of all. You know that the Nazis tried not only to kill Jews, they tried to kill Judas. And so they had this demonic reversal. So, there's a Mengele, Dr. Mengele, the notorious medical superintendent in Auschwitz, used to say, in education of, of, of uh, an entire target, the Ivy side, who will leave them? And so some of their worst actions were reserved for Pesach. And as you know, for Pesach 1943, they scheduled the complete liquidation, extermination of the Warsaw Ghetto. And that is why the Warsaw Ghetto uprising took place on that of Pesach. As you know, Jews there unarmed survived for longer than the whole France. But that was the turning point in Jewish. At that point, Jews said, we get up and we fight back. We are now no longer going to die al-Kiddush Hashem, we're going to live al-Kiddush Hashem. And that was the great turning point of Jewish history. Except for the fact, as I said, that what had started as Christian anti-Semitism eventually reinfected the Middle East, where it had all begun 23 centuries ago. 
and so on her place of 13 years ago, as the celebrants were sitting down in the Seder in the Park Hotel in Netanya, a suicide bomber exploded the device, killing 29 people and injuring 150 others. And that is really how the theme of Pesach and anti-Semitism have been interwoven from the earliest days to today. Now the question is, and this I am, why? Why? And I think the answer is absolutely simple. But I think we have to be unembarrassed to say it loudly. Pesach is the season of our freedom. Judaism was the first religion to say the fundamental thing God seeks to give us is freedom. And people who hate Jews are the people who hate freedom. That is why we were attacked by every totalitarian or tyrannical empire that that part of the world has ever known. That is why Jews were always attacked, whether by the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians, the Iranians or the Alexandrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Christian and Islamic empires of the Middle Ages, all the way to the Third Reich of the Soviet Union. Every nation that sought to wipe out individual freedom or cultural integrity and difference always had to attack the Jews. Because we were the ones who stood up for freedom. We were the ones who stood up for the right to be different. Homer, don't forget, when did he take this, when did he throw lots? 30th of Nisan, just, you know, Erev Kagatesa. It wasn't actually Erev Kagatesa. And 14th, 15th, Erev Kagatesa, and the first two days of Kagatesa, when Esther and Mordecai gathered the Jews and asked them to fast. Uh, which, after some of our wonderful self indulgent Kagatesa's away, uh, we also tried to get Anyway, so here is the thing. It seems to me. That as the world faces a new throw of freedom from ISIS, from the rival Islamists and so on, today, more clearly than ever before in history, we can now see the people who hate Jews are the people who hate freedom. And we have to stand together with all the people who care for freedom to fight against persecution, whether it is of Jews, of Christians, of Sikhs, of Buddhists, of Baha'i, you name it, we have to stand together. Because Jews were the first people who introduced freedom as a religious idea. France, I feel, after events in Copenhagen, in Paris, in Belgium, that Europe is finally beginning to get it. They are finally beginning to understand that the hate that begins with Jews never ends with Jews. That people only hate Jews because we're different. But it's what being different that makes us human. That makes every life special. That makes every life like the other one all day, like the entire universe. And I, for the first time, I'm feeling that Europe begins to understand that if Europe loses its Jews, Europe loses itself. No one will ever, as long as human beings walk this earth, forgive Europe if they allow Europe 70 years within living memory of the Holocaust to become a place where it is not safe to live as a genome. The entire moral reputation of Europe is on the line. 
the entire freedom of European sovereignty. And therefore I say this, that at the end of the day, we suffer. Our people suffer. The Ramban says, Jacob, after his wrestling match with the angel, limped. And he said, we limp after our persecution. Today we limp. But the truth is that every one of those empires I just enumerated, every one of which was the superpower of its day, every one of those has been consigned to history. And our tiny people, one-fifth of one percent of the population of humanity, most of them appear to be in this room, and <laughs> still standing sin on this road, my friends, think about it. Think about it. Today, just as we're complaining that anti-Semitism has returned, think about the other side. Think about the fact that we've been around for 4,000 years, and never in all of 4,000 years did we have two things simultaneous. Number one, sovereignty and independence in the land of Israel. Number two, freedom and equality in the diaspora. Sometimes we had one, sometimes we had the other. Never before have we had both. And let us therefore, mindful of all the worries, and mindful that we need Leo Shimori, still say that he should under love a of the Lord. I Baruch Hu kept his promise with us, and we will keep his promise with our promise with him to believe in him, to keep faith with him, to fight for freedom and human dignity. And let us all, as a Jewish people and as a humanity, drink the Abba Kosos together and say, I'm Israel. Ceremonies asked when is child present? <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> uh, Rabbi Levine has the microphone, so just raise your hand. It is very, it's, it's very arresting when you are having a conversation with Muslims and I have many good and wonderful conversation partners, uh, but especially from the Middle East, you after a long conversation, sometimes years conversation, so why do you Jews actually need the country? The religion, the population. I say, yeah, well, that's true, but then Islam is a religion and a nation, and you have 56 countries, and then Christianity is a religion and a nation, but there are 102 countries today whose majority of the population is Christian. So if you have 102 Christian nations and 56 Muslim nations, how can one Jewish one is one too many? And I'm afraid that's the only answer you can give. Don't forget also. Don't forget also that there is only one reason that Jews and Christians are interested in the land of Israel and in Jerusalem, and that's because we were there first. That's the only reason. They are Abrahamic monotheisms. They've read our book, and they've said that is their holy land. 
In other words, the one language in shared speech of Babel is the language of imperialism. It's the language of the first empires conquering smaller nations and forcing people to speak their language. And hence, Babel and later Egypt become a paradigm of order without freedom, as opposed to freedom without order. The central issue of tonight is that issue of order and freedom. Freedom is absolutely central to the stories about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, freedom of the will. Judaism is a religion and a culture of will and choice, unlike Greek, ancient Greece, which is a culture of character and destiny. And these are different kinds of characters. Freedom of the will does not function in the literature of ancient Greece the way it does in ancient Israel. So the issue of personal freedom and collective freedom is the central dynamic. And that's what Abraham is told in chapter 12, to leave behind all the things that make you conform, your land, your birthplace, and your father's house, and go somewhere and be different. That is the argument I put forward in my book, Dignity of Difference. God told Abraham to go and be different in order to teach the world the dignity of difference. And that has been the Jewish past ever since. The first account of an anti-Semitic one-off genocide in the Bible in chapter 3 of the book of Esther that we just read on Purim, Yeshua'am echad mufuzam forad ben'amim v'dateheim shonot mi'olam. These are the people who are different. Anti-Semitism is the paradigm case of this land of the Amman. We know that every nation is different. Every person is different. That's true. The Jews were the only people who consistently over time insisted on the right to be different and the dignity of difference. They were the only population in Europe that over time refused to assimilate to the dominant culture or convert to the dominant faith. And that is really what I define as anti-Semitism. This refusal to accept the right of the individuals to be different, which is the essential basis of liberty. But that's a very long story. I'm giving you five minutes. Good. Right. At the back of the room. Yes. You will have to speak extremely loudly and we'll thank you. Right. In your eloquent remarks, you touched upon Europe and the Jews. In your estimation, I know you're not a prophet because Rabbi <laughs> However, in your estimation, do you think that the Jews of Europe have a future in Europe? Well, <laughs> I was sitting in that wonderful historian of Islam, Bernard Lewis, 10 years ago, and somebody asked him, Professor Lewis, what do you think is going to happen in Iraq? And he said, well, I'm a historian, so I only make predictions about the past. <laughs> And then he said, and what's more, I'm a retired historian, so even my past is passé. <laughs> uh, but I think the issue is serious. And I um, will be candid with you. In May 2007, that's nearly eight years ago, I went to see the three leaders of Europe. I was able to see the three of them together. Angela Merkel, I was saying I'm more Barossa, the head of the European Union, and Hans Gerd the head of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And I sat with 
And I said to them, Jews and Europe go back a long way. And it's been a difficult story. The experience of Jews in Europe added certain words to the vocabulary of humankind. Words like expulsion, disputation, forced conversion, inquisition, auto da fe, ghetto, and pogrom, even without mentioning Holocaust. I said, that is the past. We will wrestle with our past. But right now, the question is the future. Jews in Europe are asking, is there a future for Jews in Europe? And that should concern you, the leaders of Europe. That is exactly what I said more or less the day eight years ago to the three leaders of Europe. They were very shocked by what I told them, but now, sadly, they know exactly what I was warning them about. I do not know how Europe would ever live down situation like that. I really don't. I mean, it shocked me. There was a time, a couple of years ago, when the Dutch Parliament banned Schrita. And they called me in because I'm, because of the law, not the life, the law. <laughs> I'm actually a British parliamentarian, so I was able to go and address the Dutch Parliament. And I really did deliver the shortest speech I've ever delivered. Insisted after a long introduction. Of two sentences. I said Holland was where European religious liberty was born. Don't let it be the place where European religious liberty died. And that really shocked me. And they unbanished it back. But yeah, I, you don't want to have to do that kind of thing too often. You really don't. Europe must know. If it is not safe to be a Jew in Europe, it is not safe to be a Christian. It is not safe to be a Hindu. It is not safe to be in Europe, full stop. And that has been the litmus test of every civilization since Jews first said, for on earth. I mean, that is the test. So there is no question whatever that the leadership of Europe, at least Angela Merkel, at least the Prime Minister of France, and at least three Prime Ministers of Britain since this began, Danny Global and David Cameron, all of them have been terrific. They know what's at stake. They really know what's at stake. Whether all the Prime Ministers of Europe know what's at stake, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I'm worried about Scandinavia. I'm worried about Hungary. I'm worried about Belgium. I mean, I am a little worried about Holland. And, and these are difficult, difficult, difficult times. But I do believe that uh, as long as we can, we stand and we fight. Because we're fighting for something very big here. Um, and I'm speaking here specifically about England. I mean, I, I don't think any of us can judge a country that we don't know about. I, don't, I, don't, I cannot tell you how things are in France and in Germany and this, but I can't tell you. I've been to all those countries. I have a personal impression, but I know that if you ask French Jews, some of them are very negative about the future, but not all of them. So I, I'd be dishonest if I gave you a general principle. I think Britain is still worth fighting for, and I intend to stay and do the fight. 
But I do believe, I do believe that all of us have to reach out to others. I, I believe that Christians right now are being massacred in, well, they've been completely eliminated in Afghanistan. They've been, I mean, there were one and a half million Christians in Iraq following years ago. Today, 400,004. Today, virtually every Christian who can escape from Syria has escaped from Syria. Um, five million Coptic Christians are living in fear in Egypt. So, you know, I, I think we have to be aware that this is bigger than Jews. This really is big and it's an important fight and it's a fight in which, yes, we have enemies, but we also have friends. And they're good friends and we need to make more. So I think Britain still has a British jury, still has a future. The others I'm not going to pass judgment about, but you're right to raise the question. It is an important one. So that was that. my question. What is the future for Jews in Europe? And how can we support the Jews in Europe who are in trouble? <coughs> we in the diaspora. Kevra, listen. You know what we've got to do? We have to make sure that we are strong. I tell you something, you know, I tell you every empire tried to destroy us and they failed. And yet, three times our people went into exile. You know when? Once in the time of Joseph and his brothers. That's the one we remember on Pesach. The second time into Babylon. Third time after the Roman conquest. Why? The answer is very simple. It's the same reason in all three cases. Joseph and his brothers couldn't live in peace together. In the days of the first temple, after a mere three Israelite kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom split in two, and it was your Abraham Lincoln, not our Winston Churchill, who said, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. And then in the days of Rome, do you know what they were doing while Vespasian and Titus were besieging Rome? The Jews inside Rome were busy fighting one another with the enemy outside. Read Josephus, it's one of the scariest things you'll ever read. So it turns out that there is only one people that could ever endanger the future of the Jewish people, and that is the Jewish people. Friends, we have to stay strong together. Don't let it be Jews who stand up and criticize Israel to the world. Don't let it be Jews in Europe leading the fight against Shit and Miller. Don't let it be Jews, believe you me, I'm going to let you into a secret. We have enough enemies already without I tell you this if the Jewish people are united, and by that I don't mean they agree, fans, that the Jews agree. The God is horrible, would give up in despair. He only ever chose us because he loved a good army. <laughs> so let's not agree. Let's have our argument. Let's carry on having four different children in our Gaza. Let's carry on having a thousand different interpretations. But we stand together. Jews in Chutzarets with the Jews in Israel. Jews in America with the Jews of Europe. There is no nation that could ever hold sway against the Jews. And so therefore, let this 
Preamonas. Just as he was in Egypt. When Jews realized they had a common enemy, they became Hinei Am, B'nai Israel, It was when they realized that that Pharaoh was an enemy that they united as a people for the first time. Now we have a new enemy. Let us be united, and I assure you, no power on earth will ever try. I think uh, many of us in this room would wish that uh, they could listen to you uh, unendingly. <laughs> That's a great word. Uh, but sadly, I know that uh, you have other places to be. Uh, we want to thank you for this extraordinary evening, and we invite everyone to uh, refreshments out in the lobby. Thank you to one and all.